Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. There's a lot of equipment out there we use with our young athletes to hopefully reduce the risk of injury. Some's required for particular sports, but some athletes and families just purchase things on their own to use. But does the protective equipment do what it is intended to do? How about protective equipment and its role in reducing the risk of concussion? Today on the podcast, I'm going to be joined by two experts in the world of pediatric sports medicine research with an interest in injury prevention and youth sports. It's time for another research review episode of the podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by two colleagues from my alma mater of the University of Wisconsin, Dr. Allison Brooks and Dr. Tim McGuine. Dr. Tim McGuine is an athletic trainer and prolific researcher at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He is a sports medicine researcher and received his doctorate in education. He established the Wisconsin Sports Injury Research Network, which allows for the collection of prospective data in a diverse group of high school and club sports facilitated by coaches and licensed athletic trainers. Over 16,000 adolescent athletes have been recruited through this network to help answer questions through research in pediatric sports medicine. Dr. Allison Brooks is a tenured associate professor in the departments of orthopedics and pediatrics at the University of Wisconsin, where she serves as the head team physician for men's soccer and women's ice hockey. She also acts as the Director of Concussion and Nutrition Research for the Badger Athletic Performance Program. She is the Chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Executive Committee of the Council on Sports Medicine and Fitness, and has served on the Board of Directors for the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Tim and Allison. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Always glad to be joined by fellow Badgers. <laughs> you know, we've done on our previous episodes of our research review, we'll be discussing three articles. The first is an article by Joseph Knappick, published in Sports Medicine in 2019, titled Effectiveness of Mouth Guards for the Prevention of Oral Facial Injuries and Concussions in Sports. The second is a study by Don Comstack, published in 2020 in Injury Epidemiology, titled Are High School Girls Lacrosse Players at Increased Risk of Concussion Because They Are Not Allowed to Wear the Same Helmet Boys Lacrosse Players Wear? The third we will discuss today is a study by my guest from 2020 and that was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine titled, Does Soccer Headgear Reduce the Incidence of Sport-Related Concussion? A Cluster Randomized Controlled Trial of Adolescent Athletes. So we'll get things going with the article by Napic, who is part of the U.S. Army. And this is a systematic review and it's a meta-analysis of the published data. We all know there has been a fair amount of press and push to use mouth guards to help reduce the likelihood of concussion. I actually did a quick Google search on mouth guards and concussions the other day, and in scrolling through the links, many of them seem to be quite favorable towards the reduction of concussion, or at least they, they say they are. But what does the literature really say, and what about their original intention of preventing oral facial injuries? So what the authors did here is they did a review of literature looking for studies that included, number one, contained original quantitative data on mouth guards and oral facial injuries and or concussion. They included groups that were involved in sports or exercise activities. They also included both mouth guard and non-mouth guard users, so the study had to have both of those in it, and that included either risk ratios and a 95% confidence interval comparing the injuries among mouth guard and non-mouth guard users, or data that could be used to calculate risk ratios and 95% confidence intervals. So what they found in their search, 761 articles were identified, 649 did not meet the criteria I mentioned, as we kind of typically see in a lot of these systematic reviews. 
After further analysis of the 112 remaining articles, a total of only 26 articles were identified that met all of their inclusion criteria. The way they calculated their risk ratios were using a numerator of injured mouth guard non-users divided by total mouth guard non-users and dividing that by the denominator, which was injured mouth guard users divided by total mouth guard users. And since this was a systematic review of meta-analysis, for the meta-analysis, the authors did separate analyses for the cohort studies for oral facial injuries, for the cohort studies for concussion, and then there was questionnaire studies for oral facial injuries. The sports that were included in the studies were American football, rugby, basketball, ice hockey, field hockey, handball, taekwondo, as well as some studies that included a variety of sports together. And then mouth guards analyzed were boil and bite, stock mouth guards, and custom-made mouth guards. Before moving on with the study results, Tim, do you want to explain the difference in those types of mouth guards to our listeners? Uh, briefly, we consider a stock mouth guard to be something that's it's just a piece of plastic or rubber that's held between clenched teeth. The boil and bite, they're like a generic mouth guard that is form-fitted by the athlete themselves. So it's boiled, it's, it's heated up in the microwave or boiling water, and then uh, the athlete fits it to their upper palate and the teeth to go ahead and uh, conform to their teeth. And the custom are the ones actually fitted by, by dentists. So this is where they will take an impression of the athlete and construct a mouth guard very specific to that athlete. And the wonderful thing about those is they're really nice. They're usually thinner than the boiling bites or the uh, stock, and they make it much easier for the athlete to breathe, talk, and have normal function with the custom mouth guards, but there is a cost involved in those as well. Absolutely. And that's if they are using them the way that they're intended rather than having them on the side of their mouth, chewing on them half the time, like we see on the sidelines more often than not. And so the studies that evaluated orofacial injuries included injuries to the teeth only, while others had any orofacial injuries. And then several of the studies on concussion did not provide criteria for determining the injury, so how they determined concussion. So there is some, some problem when we look at the actual data as far as how concussion was defined, which is always a problem when we look at concussion studies. They perform methodological quality scoring of each study, and overall, most were in the low range. They ranged from 34% to 68% of the available points for their methodological quality. So what did they find? First off, in the 12 cohort studies, the groups not wearing mouth guards had over twice the risk of an oral facial injury than those wearing mouth guards, and the risk ratio was 2.33. So there was some publication bias that was suggested within that group. In the 11 survey studies, the groups not wearing mouth guards also were found to have over twice the risk of oral facial injury compared to those wearing mouth guards. And that risk ratio was found to be 2.32, so very similar. And they found in the survey studies minimal publication bias risk in those studies. And then in the five cohort studies, there was little difference found in concussion risk between groups wearing and not wearing mouth guards. And that risk ratio was found to be 1.25, but the confidence interval crossed one. It was ranged from 0.90 to 1.74. There was, however, also evidence of publication bias here as well. They did eliminate one study from the analysis as it was a self-reported questionnaire instead of a cohort study, and it wasn't felt to be a good comparison to the other cohort studies. Allison, can you talk a little bit about publication bias and what that really means? Yeah, sure. I think most of us would agree that the definition of publication bias is bias that results from selective publication of research with statistically significant findings, meaning like these positive studies that find something are more likely to be published than studies or work that has non-significant findings or, you know, sort of confirms the null hypothesis or AKA negative studies. There's a really old study back from 1993 that actually is still cited quite a bit, showing that NIH-funded trials with significant results were more than twice as likely to be published as those showing non-significant results. 
bias results when you sort of pool all these published studies together alone and you can overestimate you know the effectiveness of an intervention and there's some thought that this bias can be greater for observational studies than for randomized trials and there's a lot of steps in the publishing process where this bias could occur it probably most often comes from the investigators themselves you know they don't publish their work for various reasons maybe it's you know lack of time because the result was negative, they found it uninteresting. There could be some journal policies that play a role or maybe even funding source. You know, industry may not want to publish negative studies if it doesn't show that their you know, drug is effective or their piece of equipment is effective. So really what this means is that excluding unpublished studies like from a systematic review or a meta-analysis could bias the results of that review if the unpublished studies actually showed a different effect than what was published. So if you only publish things that show a positive effect, then you know that intervention is going to look like it's effective. But what if there were just as many studies that showed no effect, but those investigators didn't publish them? So thinking about of a, a, a previous Vanderbilt investigator that you and I have known before, Mark, Dr. Warren Dunn, he really gave a talk a couple years ago here that it, as an investigator, you have a moral obligation to publish your work, whether it was a positive study or a negative study. If you had a hypothesis that you're going to find a certain association, but you didn't find that, or maybe you found something opposite or surprising, that you still had a duty to report that in the literature. And so I think we have to understand that there may be quite a bit of bias in our medical literature because people don't publish things, they don't find something, quote unquote, significant. Question for that, and, and either you can answer that, how, when we're doing a systematic review, how can we truly estimate the publication bias when, if we don't know that someone's done research on something and whatever, regardless of what their results are, whether it's uh, something in favor of what we're looking at or, or was was not, how do we know how much that is out there? I mean, is there any way for us to estimate that? Well, certainly in this study, they use some statistical methods to try and account for that. And I'll be honest, I'm not being a biostatistician. I'm not as familiar with the methods that they use, but it's certainly one way to try and account for if there were unpublished studies that maybe showed a different effect. One thing that some people recommend is that there should be some sort of registry for every study that was done, whether it was published or not. And certainly you know, some authors doing systematic reviews or meta-analyses contact investigators to see if they had results that weren't published. But I don't know, honestly, how you would go about doing that and be confident that you really were able to account for everything that was not unpublished. Uh, maybe one way to be would be to look at abstracts that were presented but never, you know, published in manuscript form. But that takes a lot of work, as I'm sure you all know. Oh, absolutely. Well, if we look at other findings from this study, this review was unable to determine if one type of mouth guard was more effective for concussion risk reduction than another. So only one of the studies actually distinguished the types of mouth guards that we talked about with the stock type, the boil and bite, and the custom mouth guard. So they weren't able to come up with any conclusions for that. Another concern in reporting of the data analyzed was that less than half of the studies reported compliance, 
And that's obviously important when looking at the effectiveness of an intervention and the data we analyze. We can certainly talk about this more when we discuss your study on soccer headgear that you both published. This study concluded that there is evidence for significant protection from oral facial injuries by using a mouth guard during sports. So as your dentist will always support you by using a mouth guard to protect your teeth, but it did not find evidence for significant protection from concussion. So either Allison or Tim, both of you, your thoughts on this study? I can take a whack at that. I, you know, I, th- I think it's a wonderful review. And maybe it confirms something that we knew. Or, or like I've always said, as a sports medicine provider, I tell every parent I've dealt with on a soccer or basketball court, soccer field or basketball court, in 30 years, I've never seen a significant dental injury in a soccer or basketball player wearing a mouth guard. I've seen plenty of teeth knocked out, chipped teeth, busted lips, other things without that. As a parent, my kids always wore a mouth guard when they were the only kids on their soccer teams to wear mouth guards. My son wrestled for four years with a mouth guard. Their youth basketball, they wore mouth guards. I think that's it. Preventing the concussion, I think that's a different step that is going to be more difficult there. I should add that we had done a study in 2014 with 2,000 football players that wouldn't have been included in this review because all the football players had to wear a mouth guard. And we found that the type of mouth guard used, whether it was a boil and bite or what we call an upgraded one, basically designed to supposedly marketed to prevent concussions or custom fitted, didn't play a role. They weren't associated with a reduced risk in concussions, depending on the type of mouth guard we saw. And that was in 2000 athletes. That was published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in 2014. We'll be sure to have a link to that particular study as well in our show notes, along with all the other studies that we're talking today. I'll just chime in quick. I mean, I think compliance with any intervention is hugely important. And so I think your point, Mark, about you can have the most expensive, beautifully made custom mouth guard, but if it's stuck in the top of your helmet or you're chewing on it or it's like still in your locker, that's not going to help you. And I certainly see that even taking care of collegiate athletes, that even when sometimes a mouth guard is is required for the sport, it's sometimes really not enforced and a lot of the athletes aren't wearing them. So I think compliance, you know, is just, you can't underestimate that. I'm curious what you think, Mark, about just the scientific plausibility that a mouth guard would actually reduce the risk of concussion with sort of the that kind of vertical impact that they describe in this article. Yeah, I've always tried to reckon with that. And, you know, when we think about concussions, we think about the biologic part of that, but then I I have to go back and try and review my physics too. And just think, does this make common sense physics wise that if I put a little protective device in between my teeth, that that's going to significantly reduce my likelihood of the brain injury. And I, I still have a hard time reckoning that myself. Now, again, I did not have a degree in physics. I was a biochem major in school. I I still don't have a great grasp on this. I know there are some people that swear up and down, and and some of it may be a marketing thing, that mouth guards make a difference, but I I just still can't wrestle. I can't kind of reckon that that physics part of it about how it would really make a difference. I can uh, lend some credence to that. Immediately after our study came out, we were contacted by two different mouth guard manufacturers that were very adamant that our f- results were flawed. I had one tell me that we were going to condemn thousands of kids to serious concussions because we weren't recommending their specific mouth guard brand, et cetera. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an issue that the marketing is saying one thing, the evidence is not showing that. 
Yeah, I think we, we run into that trouble whenever there is something that's available for purchase uh, when we talk about injury reduction of running into does it really make a difference uh, overall. We all know this. We, we see many, many sites that market products. We get asked, I'm sure, just as, as I do, you both get asked by different manufacturers to either endorse or, or promote their product. I know I've been asked to do that on a social media platform. But I, I don't do that for obvious reasons. And and when you look at their actual data, they don't have much on their websites for a lot of these companies, and which is always frustrating because parents are eager to buy them and coaches are eager to recommend them. And we run into that dilemma all the time. Yeah, the, one of my sort of takes on this is, you know, when, when people ask about football helmets preventing concussion. And I say, well, football helmets do very well what they were designed to do, you know, which was, which is to prevent, you know, catastrophic injury, you know, intracranial hemorrhage, you know, scalp, skull fractures, scalp lacerations. And so football helmets do that very well. And so I, I sort of think the same thing about mouth guards. They do a very good job to do what they were designed to do, which is prevent or a facial or dental injury. And that's kind of usually my response. And they do what they're designed to do. And like you said, Mark, I'm not sure that it's hard for me to wrap my head around how they would then be um, real effective in preventing concussion. Well, great discussion. We'll move on to our next article. And that's by Dawn Comstock and her group with the data coming from her high school Rio database. And if you're not familiar with that, it's a robust data repository that's been ongoing since 2006. I'll give the basics of the article, but would love to get Allison's take on this study. This was a retrospective cohort study looking at the lacrosse data in boys and girls from the 2008 to 2009 season through 2018-2019 season, so over a decade. And the basis of this study was to determine if there may be an implied risk reduction of concussion in girls lacrosse if they were afforded the opportunity to wear a similar helmet as boys. So why is this relevant? If you aren't familiar with lacrosse, the rules are slightly different. Boys are allowed to have contact in their version of lacrosse, but are required to wear a helmet. Girls may wear soft headgear if they prefer, but there's no requirement for helmets or headgear at all, only protective eyewear. I remember when I was in my fellowship, that's when the eyewear change for field hockey and lacrosse was being made, and there was much fighting uh, against that. Uh, The girls are very resistant to that. However, in girls lacrosse, there is a rule that prohibits body checking, although stick checking is allowed. And there's this halo or sphere rule, and I I call it the invisible bubble around the person that supposedly encompasses the seven inches around the player's head that's not supposed to be crossed. Interestingly, a study by Caswell in 2017 found that illegal body or stick contact to the head rarely resulted in a penalty in lacrosse. So even though we have this rule out there, it doesn't get called for penalties as often as it probably should. Some background here in the high school Rio database, there were 614 concussions in boys lacrosse over this 10-year span, 384 concussions in girls lacrosse in the same time frame. And if you look at the rate per athletic exposure, and just to define again, athletic exposure, we've talked about this before in previous episodes, but if you play one game, that's one athletic exposure. If you participate in two practices, that is two athletic exposure. So one practice or one game equals one athletic exposure. So in boys, the rate of concussions was 4.66 concussions per 10,000 athletic exposures. Girls, it was 3.91 per 10,000 athletic exposures. And the boys' risk ratio is 1.19, which was statistically significant, such that boys have a higher concussion rate in lacrosse than girls, which is actually interesting as most studies we've seen and have been published for looking at sports that are similar, 
soccer that boys may participate in and girls may participate in, basketball and certainly lacrosse. Typically, we see that girls usually have the higher concussion rate. So this was a little bit interesting data from my standpoint. And in both boys and girls, concussions occurred significantly higher in games and practice, which is what we typically see. The risk ratio was 8.27 for boys, 5.87 for girls. They also did not notice any trends in concussion rates over the 10-year study. And just as an aside note, this is a great study to go and look at the actual graphs. When we talk about looking at an intervention, if you have something and you're want to trying to see, does it make a difference? If you're looking over one season, that sometimes can be very difficult to make a difference. Or was there really a problem that happened there? Because they had a graph of the concussion rates over the 10-year period. And if you look, there was a big spike of concussions in 2011, 2012 year for boys and the 2015, 2016 year for girls. But the rest of it was pretty much equal across the board. So something was obviously different in those years. It could just be an aberration in that. But from what we see over year to year, it's one of those that, again, you kind of have to take some of these studies when you're looking at it just for a year or so, or maybe a season that it sometimes may be hard to, to tell if there really was a difference when you're looking at rates of concussion over time for a sport when we're trying to sort out this data. So Allison, can you talk us through what the study found with regard to their concerns? Sure. And kudos to Don Comstock. This is such a, a great resource, the High School Rio Injury Surveillance System. And this kind of research would be virtually impossible to do without this surveillance system. And this paper was really well written, and they were very clear with what their main objective was, which was to determine if girls lacrosse players were at increased risk of concussion, but specifically for sticker ball contact, because they were not allowed to wear the same helmet that's mandated in boys lacrosse. They went about evaluating this by calculating something called the attributable risk, which is really the risk difference. They subtracted the rate of concussions from sticker ball contact in boys lacrosse from the rate of concussions from sticker ball contact in girls. And then using this, they were able to calculate the rate of concussions from sticker ball impacts that actually could have been prevented if the girls lacrosse players had been able to wear the same hard shell helmets that were mandated in the boys game. And what they found was the the rate of concussions sustained from sticker ball contact was over two and a half times higher among the girls than the boys. And so that's a a noticeable difference. Using something called the attributable risk percentage, they found that 61, almost 62% or almost two thirds of concussions that were sustained from the sticker ball and girls lacrosse were attributable to the fact that the girls were not wearing this same hard shell helmet that was mandated in boys lacrosse. So then kind of comparing this to kind of overall the number of concussions in girls lacrosse, they estimated that 44% of all concussions in girls lacrosse could have been prevented if the girls were allowed to wear these same hard shell helmets with the full face mask as, as the boys. That is a, you know, a significant percentage. It would have prevented potentially 172 concussions. Sometimes I think we can get focused on, you know, rates and ratios and percentages. But if you think about 172 concussions, that's 172 young girls who did not sustain a head injury. So I think if we think about it that way, that's a pretty profound finding. Their conclusion, they really didn't mince any words. I'm going to quote them here. There's no defendable argument appear to exist to justify restricting female lacrosse players access to this effective piece of protective equipment. You talked about this sphere rule, Mark, that you know is supposed to prevent stick contact to the head. So let's say that was 
perfectly enforced. And that took all concussion or head contact out of the game that was just from stick contact alone. There would still be a significant number of concussions that were occurring from just contact with the ball. An errant throw, somebody didn't see it coming. So there still would have been a quarter of concussions that would have occurred just from ball contact alone. One of the other things that I found interesting was when they looked at the rate of concussion from sticker ball contact and they looked at competition in practice, it was similar for the girls, meaning the girls were injured from sticker ball contact the same rate in competition as they were in practice compared to the boys. And so what this tells me is that obviously you're not in practice intentionally trying to whack your teammate with your stick or with the ball. A lot of this contact is incidental, even occurring at practice. And it's not just that it's, oh, it's all related to game, you know, and there's more contact in game and it's more physical in game. And a lot of this, my impression from their data is a lot of it is incurring in practice just from accidental contact between, you know, teammates who like each other. You'd hope they like each other, right? I would hope so. <laughs> I'd love to get Tim's take on this as someone who is part of the National Federation for High Schools. Why is it that some sports find it so hard to change rules or fight against recommendations for certain protective gear, especially when we have data supporting the benefit of them? Again, it's one of those things I thought, well, that's an easy no-brainer. And then when you get to these committee meetings and see everything that goes into it and see how the sausage is made, it's never as cut and dried as it appears in the discussion section or conclusion of a manuscript. There are a lot of factors. One of the things that I never considered is, again, in the, in the case of the girls lacrosse, you know, are there helmets available? Do they meet standards? Are standards available? Can they be tested? Can you ramp up? And some of the uh, things we found is, is one thing to say we should mandate it. It's another thing to say, well, we don't have any manufacturers producing it. You know, that, that that's an, that's one factor. The unintended consequences, again, I, I think they're constantly pushed, these governing bodies are constantly pushed by basically people trying to market a device. You know, they're trying to make money off this. So they, they're trying to weigh that evidence with this. And the other thing is, there's not a lot of good evidence. They've Dawn Constock did a wonderful job with this analysis and this paper. But so many times people will say, you need to, to make sure every high school athlete wears this based on this laboratory study of 12 athletes. Right. And that's the level of evidence they're bringing without talking about Dawn talks about the gladiator effect. What are the unintended consequences? What's going to be compliance? It's easy to say it should be done. It gets messy when you actually try to do it in the population and, and see the results and what other things happen to it. One of my other sort of takes from this was if, if you think about other just girls sports, softball and hockey, you know, in softball, you have a you know projectile ball, you're using a bat. In hockey, you've got projectile pucks and they're using sticks. And in both those sports, you know, helmets are required. And even for softball now, I mean, face shields are, you know, a cage when you're batting or you're a base runner. And for ice hockey, helmets and face shields. So is lacrosse that much different when you have a projectile ball and a stick? And so why would we not require a similar level of protection for that sport? And then sort of my second thought is, while equipment is important, in some ways, I think there are many other things that are more important, like individual playing style, how athletes are coached, coaching respect for your opponent and following the rules and playing hard and playing physical, but with not an intent 
to hurt your opponent. And enforcement of the rules that are there really to protect the players. And certainly, you know, in the sports I cover, you know, particularly ice hockey, I mean, trying to really enforce this, you know, zero tolerance for contact to the head. So equipment matters some, but behavior and culture matter a lot and maybe matter more. As I was reading through this study, I'm going through, all right, well, that makes a lot of sense as well. Let's, you know, let's add the helmet in there to girls lacrosse. But why don't we change the rule for boys lacrosse when we talk about, you know, it it is a sport that is a heavy contact sport. And in this study, they found athlete to athlete concussions in boys lacrosse accounted for two thirds of the concussions. So if we can have this sphere and bubble rule in girls lacrosse, even if we, I don't know, what does that mean? Well, if we do it, do we add, now do we let girls have contact like the boys? Or should we think about, well, maybe we don't need to have this sport have contact because we don't allow it really in the girls. So why are why do we have to have these two different standards there when we know that if we looked at it, and I would love to try and crank out this data, I'm sure we probably could from, from the study that she has and the data that Dawn put out there. It, what would the opposite effect be if we said, well, instead of you know adding the helmet, we're going to get rid of the contact in boys lacrosse and the athlete athlete contact? What would that do? You know, I think that's a great question. I, I, you would you would think that would have some effect, right? That that should reduce those injuries to a certain extent. Again, that that seems logical. It should work. Yeah, I just go back to women's ice hockey as a kind of a great example. In boys ice hockey, there's body checking is allowed, and in women's ice hockey there's no body checking. And so sometimes when folks haven't seen the elite players that I have the privilege of taking care of at the collegiate level and, and some who play at the you know national um, Olympic level, there's lots of contact in, in, in women's hockey. It can still be a very physical game and not have checking. So I would say maybe that could be the same for boys lacrosse. Like you said, Mark, it'd still be a very physical game with body contact. But I think certainly in the hockey world, you know, we've shown that body checking is one of the top mechanisms for injury. And so at whatever age or whatever level, whatever gender you introduce it, your rate of injury or your risk of injury is going to go up. Easy to say and easy for us to propose, but always seems hard to do. Hard to do. (laughs) And again, it's that culture change, right? It's whenever we're trying to change a culture or change the basic fundamentals of a sport, unless Unless there's a lot of money behind it, you know, the NFL changing their kickoff rules, which we did see a a reduction in concussions that were as a result of kickoffs. You know, I I think it's going to take one of those types of efforts from the top down. I don't think we're going to see it necessarily from the bottom up, unfortunately. No, I agree. And I, you know, but I I would use ice hockey as an example again. I mean, Carol Emery and our Canadian colleagues in many ways are they do such great injury prevention work, not just in policy changes, but also collecting the data. And so just with, you know, time and persistence, you know, Carol and Emery collected data that showed unequivocally, you know, what the risk of body checking was in the youth, at the youth level in ice hockey. And she got USA Hockey and Hockey Canada to raise the age at which body checking was introduced. So I think you're right. It requires a lot of data and it takes time. But I think with persistence, there can be ultimately, you know, positive changes in the game that make it safer. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion with our last article in the research review on protective equipment. Make your podcast soar with the editor core. Editing podcasts can be rough. 
Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Welcome back. We're continuing our discussion now with Dr. Tim McGuine and Dr. Allison Brooks on our research review. Well, finally, we'll discuss the study authored by my two guests, where Tim was the lead author, and this was published in 2020 in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. So, Tim, can you talk us through the study and what you set out to do? Yeah, th this is a randomized trial looking to try to find out if soccer headgear would reduce incidence of concussion in high school soccer players. That's a, just a real basic premise, you know, does headgear work? I, I would say, I think Dr. Brooks and I were approached probably seven or eight years before we did this study by a manufacturer. And at the time we said, no, nobody's going to do it. Nobody's going to wear soccer headgear. It's, it's a non-issue. But then a matter of years, we saw that change where we're getting more and more reports of whole soccer clubs, adolescent clubs, requiring their kids to wear headgear. And we were getting questions, did they work or not? And we were lucky enough to get a grant from Noxie to go ahead and do this. We set out to do this. We'd done two previous studies, randomized trials with protective uh, devices, specifically ankle braces and football and basketball players. So we had a, a framework to get this done in this high school setting. And uh, we knew we'd have to get a large sample. And we did need a sample of, I think, over 2,700 kids to get involved. Interesting thing, you talked about compliance, and that's where those compliance issues make a difference. In all of our studies, every day we collect data on, in this study, was the athlete, did they practice? Yes, no. Did they wear their headgear? Yes, no. What model of headgear did they wear? Those type of things. Was it a game? Did they get hurt? All those things. And that's the way you really track compliance is to have somebody there on a day-to-day -day basis. The other thing is that an interesting fact in our study is when we did it, there were, I think, five or six headgear that were allowed to be used in high schools. Specifically, they met some sort of engineering standard. And so they were allowed to be used based on an engineering standard. And we were told we had to include all of those models in the study. They were going to treat them all as one. If they met the standard, it's a, are you wearing this headgear with a standard or not? And that created some issues, but I think it created some other questions and maybe some future directions down the road. So basically... We would present these different models of headgear to the kids and let them choose it. Well, we had some models, such as the Storelli headgear, where 363 kids in the intervention group wanted to wear it. Forcefield was an, another headgear, very popular, 364 wanted to use that. We had two other headgear with, I think one was LDR, 
that only two kids wanted to wear that. And so it would have been very difficult to do that. But they're all included in the model because that's that's what we had to do. If they wore that headgear, they were all it was a yes, no binary question. And we collected that over several years and came out. The bottom line was we looked at that and we recorded all the mechanisms for the injuries. We included the previous concussion history for all the athletes. We included a baseline score on symptoms, et cetera, and put it in the study with us. Basically, you know, if if we just go to the bottom line, we said no the headgear did not play a role, that the rate of concussion was the same whether these kids wore the headgear or not. I mean, we think, well, that's easy, that's cut and dried, you know, that's that negative result we want to talk about, that's important. However, though, when we get into that, we get into compliance and the analysis. Anytime you do a study like this, as I mentioned, there's kids that are wearing the headgear or not. We had a number of athletes who were in the headgear group that were injured even though they didn't wear their headgear. We had to include them in the intent to treat protocol because they were assigned to wear a headgear. And if they got concussed, they were considered to be wearing a headgear. So that would be one aspect that would kind of confound the results a little bit. We did that second analysis as treated, and we saw some of these numbers started to shift. We also recognized, I think most people do, that the rate of concussion is very different in the boys and the girls. And so that was another factor. And as we started looking at this, Overall, it didn't seem to make a, a difference, but if we looked at the kids actually wearing headgear or not, now some differences started to creep in. The rates started to, I guess, get a little different, especially with the females. As we did this, nothing was still becoming significant, but you could see that now it wasn't this simple 4% wearing headgear, 4 per not. For the girls, it was, I think, the headgear rate of concussion was 4.2%. No headgear was 6.5%. It's not significant, but it's shifted. As we were finishing up the study, we found out that Virginia Tech had done some head impact or some headgear impact studies, much like they'd done with their football helmets, and rated the headgear similar to football helmets from very high level of force attenuation, meaning it did a very good job, to a very low level of force attenuation. And interestingly, some of our models that a lot of kids wore in the lab, they didn't do very much at all. On the other hand, we had some certain models that did very well in the lab. And if we looked at those specific models, we started to see this specifically for girls. There might be something here. There might be something that merits further investigation beyond headgear doesn't work. If it was going to do it again, I I think I would only use headgear that did very well in the lab. I would concentrate on the young girls to go ahead and study those instead of lumping them in with the boys. And I'd look at other factors. You mentioned some of the other things going on, and I can get into a little bit of that more, but I'll let Allison chip in here, I guess. You could fill in some of the things I'm missing about the study. Like like you said, we almost were sort of dragged kicking and screaming to finally do this study because I really thought there'd be no way we could get this many teams and athletes to participate. And so one of the things that really amazed me was how compliant the teams and the athletes were with actually wearing the headbands. I mean, that just sort of floored me, and we certainly were not expecting that. One of the other sort of important things the study highlights is is the the importance of as a part of your study looking for other types of injury to make sure there's not you know some unintended consequence you know we have done this previously Dr. McGuire will tell you and and looking at ankle brace for you know preventing uh, or reducing risk of ankle injury in, in football and basketball so one of the sort of concerns about you know ankle braces is it would just result in more knee injuries so we looked at that and did not find that to be the case. So I think this really just highlights that you have to have data to show that there really were not any other unintended consequences. You know, other types of injuries didn't increase 
potentially as a, a result of your intervention. And then the last thing would just be, you know, I, I know this idea of sort of risk compensation is out there in the literature. Certainly it's, you know, been brought up. I'm certainly like with, with helmets, for example, I, I kind of got my, really my interest in research started when I was in, in Seattle and worked with Dr. Fred Rivara at the Harborview Injury Prevention Center. And we were doing a study looking at skied snowboard helmets and this sort of this idea that, you know, wearing a helmet or other protective equipment, you know, that sort of gladiator effect and that that would make people change their behavior or take more risks. And I really don't think that has been borne out in the literature. I just, I really don't. You know, there is, and I quote this sometimes, and I, I'm i blanking on the article right now, and I'll, I'll find it and I'll put a link to it. But there was a study that was looking and it was done by athletic trainers where they had people in the lab and they had them headgear versus no headgear. And they looked at the force that they would hit the ball with, with them. I, you guys may remember this study. Yeah, yeah, and, and they show that there was a significantly increased amount of force that they applied to heading the ball with the headgear on. So, you know, that kind of bore a little bit into that. Well, maybe they do think that they can do things better with headgear on. And does that change the risk, you know, by having, does it negate any protective effect that's there? But that's, that's the only one I know of when we're talking about just headgear in general. No, I, I do remember that study. And I think you're, you're definitely correct. That's what they found. And my, my, as an old school soccer player, you know, I, my thought would be, you know, did it change how they perceived or sensed the ball hitting their head. And so they felt like they had to try and strike it harder because they weren't getting the same sort of feedback because they had this piece of foam in between. But that is purely conjecture. But you're right, it needs to be further studied. But I think Tim and I would also argue, you know, what having people do things in a lab setting is not the real world. And so that's, you know, why so impressed with the work that Tim has done with, you know, the Wisconsin injury network. And at the end of the day, things may look one way in the lab, but out there on the real soccer pitch, it might be a totally different story. So. Well, can I add something too? It's an interesting thing. You know, we talk about, you talk about lacrosse and maybe enforcing that arc or that sphere of contact. One of the big discussions is what about heading? Should heading be allowed or not? And, you know, you're going to reduce concussions without, you know, if we reduce heading or limit heading in certain situations. In our study, you know, only 6% of the kids, 6% of the concussions occurred in heading the ball without other player contact. It's very low. Uh, on the other hand, you know, contact with another player other than a slide tacker was nearly 60% of the injuries. And as I've talked to one of our other colleagues, Andrew Watson, who's a, is a soccer coach and, and primary care provider as well, and and we've talked to, you know, how many concussions could be prevented in, in high school if we would teach adequate ways to head the ball properly, to accept contact, to land properly, that you know, a lot of these kids were hit or, or got their concussion by landing on the ground. They went up to head the ball and came down awkwardly and hit their head on the ground. And it's almost like I said, should we be stressing the, like the jump training program we do for basketball? For soccer players, could we reduce the injuries specifically in young ladies? by teaching them how to aggressively go to the ball, accept contact, and get the landing on two feet without hitting the ground again. I wonder how many concussions we could reduce with that without an exterior protective device. I know uh, Drew has also talked about, you know, that sometimes players are coached, and it seems to be more the female players than males, to keep your 
elbows at your side, you know, even like the officials will sort of chirp, you know, like, you know, keep your hands, keep your hands down, keep your elbows down. And so what then happens is two players with their arms at their sides going up to try and head the ball. And so without being able to have your arms away from your body, you can't, right, provide some sort of buffer between your body and the other player. You also can't, like you said, Tim, you, you can't control your body position, maybe your balance. Does this result in actually the two players going up and actually contacting head to head because they aren't allowed or are not taught how to go up using some other part of their body to try and position themselves to try and hold off the other player? So it's, I think it's a, uh, yeah, I think Drew's had some really interesting thoughts about that. And it's certainly a unique perspective, not just as an injury researcher, but as a, as a soccer coach. And that, that gets to the cost benefit of any intervention, whether it's protective equipment or not. And somebody says, you know, well, just let's add lacrosse helmets. Let's add soccer headgear, et cetera. There's a cost involved. And if we start telling each player you're responsible for 50 or $60 of additional cost, for some people, that's not going to make a difference. For other people, that may drive them away from the sport. It's just one more added cost besides, you know, shoes and coaching fees and other things involved. And so I always look at that. It's one thing to, to mandate these, but if the cost is such that it drives kids away, are we doing the sport any good? Are we doing our society any good to keep kids active and healthy if we're adding all these other costs to their ability to participate? Yeah, I think that's a, a great point as far as adding additional costs or additional burdens to an athlete or, or their family when we're, we're asking them to do more stuff. But, you know, it's also, uh, it's part of the process of sports, unfortunately, the way that it is. And yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of costs that they are <laughs> incurred in the youth sports world these days that probably could easily be given up, <laughs> as we all know, yeah. Um, yeah. that uh, to help kind of afford, uh, to allow those things to be affordable. Through the month of January, we highlighted PRISM, uh, the PRISM Society, just looking at pediatric research and you know, I, I'm so impressed with what you guys have done up at Wisconsin. It makes me jealous to be, you know, at Missouri and and seeing kind of the network that you guys have put together there and how you've done that. If you could kind of just talk to our listeners a little bit about how you set this up and how you got buy-in from the ATs that are doing stuff for your research, the coaches, and certainly the athletes, because uh, that's a big component here of getting these large numbers in your studies, the multiple studies that you know, you guys have published at Wisconsin, kind of give us an idea about how you did that, because I think that can probably be overwhelming to some people. Like, I really would like to do some of this, but I, I don't know how to get started. Well, first you have a young, eager physician like Dr. Brooks come into your office and say, you know, what can we do? <laughs> I've got some money. What do you want to study? <laughs> money helps. Money that helps. That is true. <laughs> and I think that first ankle brace study was, uh, was different because the idea of recruiting 1,500 kids and randomizing them into different groups and getting statisticians on board, uh, even going to the IRB and saying athletic trainers are going to be part of the study team, and the IRB would look at me and say, "Who's an what's an athletic trainer? You can't have them collect data for you. We don't even know anything about them. Now, when I go to our IRB and say we're going to have athletic trainers collecting data for us, it's a non-issue. It's like, okay, great. It's, it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of being on the road, I think, in the months when I'd be signing up kids to take part in the study, I would maybe put three or 4,000 miles on my car to get to the, the meetings. You have to 
you have to invest time and energy. I said it's important. It's one thing to talk about a study, but if I want to get a person in the study, I'm going to have to convince their parents that they need to be involved in the study. I need to be able to look at their mom in the meeting and say, this is why it's important. The athletic trainers are wonderful. We have a great network that we've tried to work as much as we can with it. We pay them. We pay the schools because we can't pay the subjects. We try to do everything we can to make it easier for the athletic trainers to go ahead and collect data for us. You know, we've had some success, I guess. I think a most recent study, I think we had 72 athletic trainers collect data for us in girls volleyball, which was phenomenal that we were able to get that many schools and athletic trainers on board for a cohort study. But yeah, I don't know. Lessons learned the hard way, I guess, because I never learned about it in my clinical trials books or anything in research methods on how to do a study like this. I don't know. Am I missing something, Dr. Brooks? Well, I think as usual, Tim, you don't give yourself enough, enough credit. I mean, 100% of the reason these studies were successful was because of Tim and, you know, Tim's an athletic trainer. So I think that that street cred matters. You know, you know how to talk to athletic trainers, you know what their jobs are like, you know what their their time constraints are. And I think offering compensation to the athletic trainers, you know, to ask more of their time and to uh, to try and compensate the schools, I think certainly goes a long way. But I think a lot of it is is you, Tim, as an athletic trainer. I mean, and you bring a lot of credibility to understanding the profession in the field. And like you said, at the end of the day, there's just no substitute for driving seven hours north to Bayfield, Wisconsin, and sitting in on a uh, <laughs> on a coach's uh, parents meeting and recruiting right there and then. So, I mean, it takes a lot of legwork and I thank you for doing all of it. But I, but I think initially in our first studies, it was a small group. And now we have a wonderful group of experts in our meeting. So Dr. Brooks and I will be, there'll be other primary care physicians. Dave Bell from the Department of Kinesiology is a wonderful resource. His graduate students help. Stephanie Clythermy is a PhD statistician, has brought wonderful insights into what we're doing. And it's amazing to get these people around the room and the sa- around in the around the table in the same room. And it's amazing you get seven or eight content experts, how much good research you can do and get them all on board and working towards a common goal. As I say, one of the things I think is keys to the success of these studies is, is well, if I get involved, I look at myself and I'm probably the least trained, least qualified, least educated person in the room. I'm just surrounding myself with experts. They're doing all the hard work. They're telling me what to do. I, I can go do the grunt work, but these are the experts that are planning it and talking about the analysis and all the covariates that have to be analyzed that really make it really make it special. That team aspect of sports that everyone gets, it's, it's really no different. It really takes a large collegial and collaborative team, research team, to do these kind of studies. And because you need all kinds of people who have expertise that you don't have, but it also makes it really fun. You know, it's been it's been really rewarding to work with such a great team of people. And so just like whether it's in the clinical setting or the research setting, you know, surrounding yourself with fantastic people who you enjoy working with, it's just, you know, goes a long way to being successful. And I think the point you made, Tim, about starting small, I think is the the big probably takeaway point there is not not shooting for the moon on your first study, because I think that's probably going to just result in disaster and disappointment, um, just trying the logistics to get there. It's funny, I, I look at a pediatric research now for sports medicine, and I look at it almost like the NBA now, because you guys have this powerhouse in Wisconsin, 
you know, it's Cincinnati Children's, Boston Children's. Now I'm seeing all these people going down to Atlanta and I'm like, my goodness, it's like everybody just drafts everybody to one area or they get the the dream team in an area. And we're just going to have these big powerhouse places of pediatric sports medicine research, which I think is going to be great. Uh, it's it's really exciting to see where where things are going with our field compared to even a decade ago. It has gotten a lot better. I, I, I'm amazed. Like I said, if you look at PRISM and the aspects of what's being done in pediatric sports medicine, it, it is phenomenal. It's really, really expanded and grown in the last decade alone. It's amazing how much more work is being done and to see what's being done at these, uh, these centers, as you mentioned. Well, as we wrap up, I'd love to get a parting word from each of you as where we need to be doing more research with protective gear and reducing concussion risk. So far, we haven't seen much benefit either from the frequency of concussion or severity or even just duration to recovery. Should we have any hope in protective gear and where should we be heading in research next? And we'll, we'll start with Tim. I, I think, and again, building on our soccer headgear study, I think we need to, we really need to nail down the way to measure force in these kids to have concussions measured, you know, yes or no, headgear or not. I think we're missing some concussive events. Do we have accelerometry data that we can use? To me, in the last, it seems like decade or so, that's been the white whale. Every time I found out a something, an accelerometer that could be used with high school kids, we can measure all these different factors, whether they're using headgear or not. If something comes on the market, looks very good, and then two years later, they're like, oh, it really doesn't work that well. I think adding that component, uh, good, cheap, efficient accelerometry data would help all of our studies in terms of what could be done to prevent concussions. But to say can kids concuss or not, there's a lot of factors that go into that. And the levels of concussion and the subconcussive events need to be measured. And if we're not measuring those with accelerometry or other data, we might be missing a lot. Maybe something more important than the concussion itself. Thinking about the lacrosse study, maybe, Tim, we need to do some studies in lacrosse. And uh, <laughs> I think in their article, they said it was only in 2017 that U.S. lacrosse even allowed girls to wear even kind of just a, a soft, like a... A flexible shell is what they call it. So definitely not the same uh, hard helmet that the boys are wearing. So certainly think there's a lot of research that needs to be done, it would look like, in girls lacrosse. And that's certainly, you would know better than I do, Tam, but certainly certainly here seems to be a very fast-growing sport. Um, I think, Mark, you made a really good point earlier about the importance of longitudinal studies. I think you know, if you don't follow things, you know, for multiple years, as we all know, there there can be other things that affect injury rates. And so I think, you know, being able to do more prospective longitudinal studies is important to see, like you said, what's just sort of a blip this particular year and uh, or what may really be sort of true trends and what might be driving it. And while I certainly think improvement in equipment design and, and materials are important. I mean, certainly if you look at like the football helmets from the 60s and 70s and what athletes are wearing now, I don't think anyone would argue for going back to, you know, sort of those older designs. But I think at the end of the day, I would sort of stick with coaching and individual player behavior and enforcement of rules probably matter more at the end of the day than equipment. So I'd like to thank my fellow Badgers, Dr. Allison Brooks and Dr. Tim McGuire for joining this Badger alum today on our podcast to work through some research studies in our world of pediatric sports medicine. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library, including our other research review episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. We appreciate you taking the time to leave a five-star rating through your favorite podcast streaming site and for telling your friends about us. Until our next episode, this is Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been another research review on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. 
Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.